Well done, good and faithful servants. Daylight savings time, you made it on time. All the sinners that aren't here will be sure next Sunday we'll look down our noses at them and let them know that we all made it on time. No, it's, uh, it's great to be here this morning. I'm back from uh, Alpha Holy Spirit Weekend. I may, like I've said in the past, burst into flames up here, uh, partially because it's over. Uh, it, was a, it was a phenomenal uh, 24 hours. We had a great time. We even had uh, bonfires in the plaza. And you'll notice as you leave, there's no dark spots on the grass out there. So we, we cleaned up after ourselves. Yeah, it was a great Holy Spirit weekend. And as I've gone through Alpha, it's always my experience that people, uh, during the second or third week, when we talk about the Bible, they tend to question the Bible's authority. And one of the ways people argue against the authority or the truth of Scripture is with this line of thinking. They say something like, well, the Bible was written a long time ago. It was written by humans. Humans are fallible, and we all know the fish story where one guy catches a fish this big, and he tells a friend, and he tells a friend, and over time, the fish becomes a whale. And so all of these things contribute to a lot of people's sense that the Bible is not reliable, trustworthy, and in fact, is a lot of it's just made up. Well, my thought, or my, my comeback to that, and as much grace and love as I can offer is, why in the world didn't they make the story a little more believable? Why didn't they make it a little more exciting? I mean, why couldn't they have made Jesus, for instance, we'll talk about the New Testament, why couldn't Jesus have been like one of the X-Men or one of the heroes? I mean, why was he more spectacular? I mean, why didn't he, at the moment the Romans had the nails and the hammer and were about ready to just drive it through his palm or through his feet, why didn't he just jump up, summon his godlike power and just begin the changing of the world? I mean, why didn't that be the moment in history when God, at the top of his lungs, like something we'd see in an IMAX theater? I mean, why didn't they write that story into the, into the scriptures? Instead of this story about a Jewish guy who was born 2,000 years ago to humble beginnings, who kind of hangs out for three years in his ministry time in a relative obscurity in a very, very large a nation or a very, very large uh, system of the Roman Empire, and um, relative obscurity. And then at the last few minutes, apparently, blurts out, in front of the religious leaders and in front of the Roman authorities that, oh, I am the Son of God. He spends time telling people not to say anything, and then at the very end just kind of says, oh, I, I am the Son of God, and this begins this destabilizing message that causes the religious leaders and the Roman authorities to say, wait a minute, we've got to do something with this guy, and so they kill him. They kill him. Uh, if they were trying to make this a story that would sell, I come out of a sales background, if this was a story that would sell, I think they would have said something about this passionate person who leads this good fight and good cause and then gets killed as a result of his effort to kind of change the world through that. Well, the simple answer to that made-up story is that that's not the truth. It's not the truth uh, at all. And, and dying for a cause doesn't always garner the kind of support or belief that Christianity has experienced in the last 2,000 years. People die for a cause all the time, but nothing like the cause that's gone on from 2,000 years. Um, it's, it's spread, Christianity spread, I think you'd have to admit whether you believe it or not, the spread of Christianity is something that is short, just nothing short of miraculous. It confounds logic, I think. It confounds my logic. So I'm left with, or maybe we're left with, this story of apparent weakness how did it precipitate such a worldwide following? And why did somebody who was, by all accounts, innocent of the charges that, des that deserve death, how did his death and how does his death continue to compel people 
to believe in him. Like I saw yesterday, for instance, on the Alpha Holy Spirit weekend. How is that true? Well, I think we can see or understand when we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning. We can understand how the events of Christ in those three years of his ministry and his crucifixion um, have been and will continue to be life-changing for so many people. Carrie stepped out of the booth. We didn't have time to rehearse. I've been away, so I was going to ask her to put the words up, but I'll read them back to you and tell you a little bit about each line as I go through this. So this is the Corinthians passage that we heard this morning. The first line says, for the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. It's like throwing an anchor to somebody who's drowning. The message of the cross to people who are perishing, Paul says, is like throwing them an anchor. You're just going to take them right to the bottom. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I need to pause and tell you the context. I, I would have seminary professors beating my doors down if I didn't put this in context. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is beginning to divide over all kinds of issues, over all kinds of issues. They're dividing over the Eucharist, how, how it should be celebrated. They're dividing over um, who should be at the Eucharist, what you do before the Eucharist. They're starting to divide over all kinds of problems that are bubbling up out of this church. And so Paul is fighting back some of the things that have crept into the church, some of the ideas from society that have worked their way into the church. This, this part of the message is Paul working his way back out of those problems. He's trying to explain to the folks at that church what is central to their belief and where everything should flow from, and it's the cross, no surprise. Um, Paul is saying at the second part of that that this man Jesus um, is the truth. And this is coming from a guy, Paul, who was raised in the best schools Judaism could offer. He was a citizen of this Roman world, and he's essentially saying that the plain preaching of this cross outdoes everything he's been taught and every way that he's been raised. Christ crucified is all that matters to Paul. Then he goes on to quote Old Testament scripture, just like Jesus did. These words, like I mentioned John the Baptist and Jesus spoke a lot in the same manner. Well, Paul does the same thing with Jesus. Paul says in verse 19, for it is written, oh, and Carrie's back. Can you put up the stuff as I go, Carrie? Would you mind? I didn't have a chance to tell you that, but I'm, I'm only on the second verse, so I'm not too far ahead. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Um, that's Isaiah 29, that's Job 5, and that's Jeremiah 8. Each one of those verses of scripture uh, Job, for instance, he thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Jeremiah, the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Quoting the Old Testament to back up his message. Verse 20, where is the wise man, Paul asked? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is the crux of his argument. The Greek philosophers and the teachings of the, of the Jewish people at the time are the things that Paul says stand in direct opposition to the truth of the cross, the real truth of who Jesus is. Verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. Jesus came into the world, Christ came into the world, God's wisdom, and the world did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. To preach Christ crucified is foolish. It's foolish. We're going to do a tea room for two weeks. We're going to work here for two weeks for free. And then we're going to give the money away. That's foolish. Now we're just not, here's the thing, 
we're just not doing that for two weeks to feel good about ourselves. If you think about it, it's an incarnational, sacramental thing that we're doing. We're actually saying in those two weeks, this is the way the world should run. That's going to bother a lot of capitalists in this room. But the church believes that's the way the world runs. Not by exchanging money, not by promoting people up the chain, but that way. Whether we know it or not, what we're doing for two weeks is saying, this is the way the world should run. We should all come together each day. We should all bake things. Some should serve. Some should clean up. And we should all at the end of the day hug and kiss each other and go home and go, I can't wait to do tea room tomorrow. And not worry about how much money we made that day. That's the foolishness of the gospel. That's the foolishness of the gospel. I'm going to skip down to verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. There are the two, two pieces of argument. The, the Greeks want wisdom. They believe that the only truth can be found in the mind, that when we die, this filthy body is going to pass away and our minds are going to endure forever. The Jews demand a sign. Jesus even says that in Matthew. He gets exasperated about the Jews demanding a sign. He says um, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's dipped back into the Old Testament. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, we should all go, oh, three days and three nights? Okay, that sounds like Jesus. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment, and this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here and preaching a foolish message, I would add. The cross and Christ crucified. That's what Paul says, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. For people who live in their head and for people who live through tradition, it's going to be a problem. It's always been a problem. But to those whom God called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than any man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Paul knew that a crucified son of God meant foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews. He knew in spite of all of that, Jesus was still raised from the dead. And he is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the cross is, was then and is now the foundation of all wisdom. Remember when I said a couple weeks ago preaching, uh, talking about wisdom and fear of the Lord. And I said that fear of the Lord, I wanted to replace at least for that sermon the word fear with the word obsessed. Well, if I could paraphrase Paul right here, I'd say what Paul is saying is, it's now time to be obsessed with Christ and the cross. The way to salvation and the cornerstone of all our joys and hopes are by and through Christ's death, the cross. It's not in our head and it's not some tradition. And I think it's the same argument we hear today. I hear it in Alpha. Intellectual people tend to have it that scientifically speaking, Jesus could have never risen from the dead. This wouldn't, this wouldn't have worked. Um, and I think that we also hear lots of people in other traditions who would argue against Christ as the truth or Christ as the way. So what we're talking about here, uh, when God says that he uses things that have no power to defeat the things that hold power, are two important symbols in our church. The things that have no power to defeat the things that have power. The manger and the cross. The manger and the cross. These are the things that are. But at the time, they were the things that were not. To have been born in a manger or to have been crucified would have put you at the bottom of the list. You see, the things that were 
the things that were in in Jesus' time, Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, at Paul's time, these people are dead. The things that were in, the things that did matter, Paul, I mean, Pilate, Herod, and Caiaphas, they're dead now, Paul's writing. But the things that was not, the manger, the cross, and most importantly, Christ, were still there. And Christ is still here. Those things that in our past have told us, oh, this isn't true, oh, this can't be real, I wonder if they're still as prominent in our lives as they once were. I wonder what or who would have been on this list of things that told us the story is not true. We have to hold on, brothers and sisters, to that idea that the things that are not have been replaced by the things that are. The person that was not, the person that was humiliated, Jesus, was always the thing that was. God knew it. We know it. People on the Holy Spirit weekend know it. There's only one problem with all of this, and that it makes God look weak, I think. It leaves us with the sense that God behaved or acted weakly. But I think that's the one thing, when you look at the cross, that weakness that resonates most deeply in all of our hearts, this weakness. Think about a moment in your life. Maybe it's the moment, through God's grace, you were given the chance to follow Christ. I would, I would bargain or bet that for most of us it was a moment of foolishness. It was a moment of utter foolishness or silliness. But God chose to use what was foolish to prove his strength and his wisdom. Our faith, you see, is not something we figure out. It is pure gift. It's not wisdom that's taught in academies or at seminaries. God's greatest weakness is more powerful and stronger than human power in its most powerful expression. We are saved through folly. We're saved through something that's pretty ridiculous. And God knows that for the unbeliever, this is almost impossible to hear. Because I know, and most of you know, that words rarely win anybody over to Jesus. We can't talk somebody into believing about Jesus. It doesn't happen in the Alpha course, usually until the Holy Spirit weekend, or maybe sometimes at the end. And maybe sometimes people finish Alpha and haven't decided to follow Christ. Um, but it does happen and when it does, it happens at different times. Sometimes it happens on the Holy Spirit weekend. Sometimes it happens in a foxhole. Um, sometimes it happens beside a bed in a hospital. We talked in the staff meeting this week. We opened up our staff meeting Bible study by asking the question, where, where were moments in your life uh, where you were most touched by Christ? Where were moments that you were closest to Christ? And one by one, people in the room began to talk about a time when it was just a mom and their child in the hospital bed and that sure and certain sense that Jesus was there. Or another person talked about taking Eucharist for the first, excuse me, for the first time at 13 and sensing that God's presence was there in the communion. But staff member after staff member talked about this quiet, certain moment in their life where they were, they were closest to Christ. And I think it happens because it's a moment of vulnerability and brokenness. Because my thesis for this morning is that brokenness can't be beat. You can't beat brokenness. Paul knew that if people would allow it, the cross, to have its moment of truth in their lives, it had the power to convict and convert people. John Wesley, that great Anglican, the Methodist Church loves to claim him, but he was an Anglican until he died. That great Anglican said, in the cross, I'm going to look at the cross, in the cross, people experience first that Jesus is the power. Then, that he is the wisdom. Now remember the point 
Paul and I are trying to make about wisdom and power of the world. In today's reading, that wisdom and power is pitted against the wisdom and power of God. And Wesley says that in the cross, in defeat, in brokenness, people get to experience the true power and wisdom of God. It's upside down. In a book by Frederick Buechner that I'm reading right now, he tells the tale of Jesus and his crucifixion through a 21st century lens. And in this image, Jesus is a young man in New York City who's brought before Pontius Pilate, who's an executive in a, in a high-rise building. And Jesus is brought in, and his face is bruised, and his lip is cut, and he's dripping blood on this man's floor. And Pilate's sitting back with his $200 loafers and his $1,600 suit, and he gets up out of his leather chair, and it squeaks, and he picks his cigarette up. This was written a few years ago. He picks his cigarette up and puts it in his mouth. And as he pulls it out and exhales the blue smoke into the bruised, bloody face of Jesus, he asks that question that we've all heard read, what is truth? He blows that cigarette smoke into Jesus' face. What is truth? And Jesus stands there silent. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. You guys are all silent right now. I can hear some of your hearts beating. It's that moment when faced with the truth, the weakness, the brokenness of a cross, we all realize, my Lord and my God. And it does something miraculous to us, thank God. It breaks us. It leaves us broken. It leaves us foolish. He speaks to us in our brokenness. He speaks to us from the cross. He bids us come. But in order to come, we've got to admit our brokenness. We have to confess and admit that we're broken or afflicted by a condition, that we need healing or that we need forgiveness. The first Christian communities that Paul preached to, like Corinth, they knew that Jesus Christ had risen. They were certain that Jesus Christ had risen, and not only that, that he was alive and living among them. The people yesterday at the Alpha Holy Spirit weekend, and you people in this room know the same thing. Jesus didn't die some 2,000 years ago, and it's all over for a good cause. He's still here. The thing that wasn't at the time, but always was, is still here. And Paul wants to remind us of that over and over and over again. I'll summarize this way. Where there appears to be sorrow, failure, and defeat, there can be found the full power of God's boundless love. For the cross is an expression of love, and love is the true power that is revealed and can be experienced and received through this seemingly futile expression of weakness, the cross. The cross in its ugliness and brutality at first glance seems to represent the exact opposite of a good God who always expresses himself through power and beauty. It seems as though the finitely powered, I want to hear that, the finitely powered Pilate. He was finitely powered. His power ended the minute he died. The finitely powered Pilate stares through that smoky exhale at the defeated Jew who seems powerless. But like the bloody Jesus, the cross requires all of us to look at God in a new and profound way. It converts us because it relates to the broken part of our lives that want to hang on to Christ. The cross reveals the power of God because it reveals his love hidden beneath the brokenness. In a moment, the cross reveals on one hand man's frailty and on the other hand, God's power. Remember, folks, that this does sound like folly. And for people who don't believe, as Paul wrote, uh, it's very it, tough to swallow. They won't swallow it, most of us. I, I remember a time when I couldn't swallow it. Um, so the next time somebody looks at you and says something like, 
ah, the cross, Jesus, resurrection, it sounds too good to be true. I hope you smile um, without seeming uh, ugly or sarcastic back at them and agree, yeah, yeah, it does seem too good to be true. It does seem to be good to be true that God would use something as defeating as that to bring everyone in this room and the whole world to salvation. You can't beat brokenness. I'm going to see if the band won't play now a minute. I, I, because I'm back from the weekend, I thought we would just listen to this music. You can sing if you'd like. Um, but if there are folks um, whose hearts are still beating loudly, um, who are in a place of brokenness, um, you can come forward. And you can kneel, and um, if there's more than a couple, then John and Tyler will join me and we'll say a prayer over you. Uh, if no one comes forward, that's fine. Uh, but we'll just listen to this music and um, we'll thank God for brokenness.